Today, we are starting something a little bit new. We're starting a series that we're calling simply The Bible Project. Now, if you've been around for a little while, you may know that we've been studying through the Bible. We try to do that every year together, but we've been going through it with a, an organization called The Bible Project since January, and it has been incredible. How many of you have been, you know, kind of hit or miss on that track with me? Have you been, you've been there a little bit? <laughs> That's not good. So, so, so we want to make sure that, um, that you can do this. Listen, I just want to encourage you today. Here's what you need to do. Uh, this is how it works, man. We say, hey, let's launch this. Let's read the scriptures together. Let's pour it out over the course of this year. We started in January, and then things get busy. People get busy. I get busy. You get busy. Summer comes. There's graduations. There's parties. There's all kinds of things happening. And then it's summer, and then schedules change, and so it's hard, and so you kind of fall off the wagon. So if you've fallen off the wagon with your Bible reading, you're probably going to hell, but... <laughs> it's a little too strong, maybe... Uh, that's not, that's not the case. We don't believe that here. If you're visiting, you're like, it's time to go. Um, but we don't believe that here. But it is so good for you and your relationship with Jesus. And so here's what you need to do. Go uh, to the app store, whichever app store you use, and download the Read Scripture app. All right? Just download it, and you can jump on with us. We started Lamentations today. And who doesn't want to read some Lamentations? So, so just jump on with us and, um, and go through it. But the great thing about the Bible Project is that it's been, it's been so revolutionary in helping so many people figure out new things about the scriptures that they didn't know. It helps you see big ideas and big themes out of the scripture. And so today and over the course of the next couple of weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these big ideas, a few big themes from the Bible project and from the Bible and kind of dig into them and learn how to live our lives for Jesus a little bit better. So not only do they have some videos about the books that we read, but they also have these theme videos. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to watch one, we're going to talk about it a little bit, and we're going to become more like Jesus. That sound good? All right. So today we're going to start with heaven and earth. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but... This idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. 
Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again.
Sure, you can clap for it if you like. They, they put a lot of energy and work into it, so I guess you can. <laughs> I didn't, to be clear, they did. What happens to me when I die? Like, this is the thing that pretty much everybody wants to know about. This is the big question that's on most people's minds, isn't it? I definitely grew up in a tradition where we were very concerned about that and talked about it often. We grew up singing songs like, I'll fly away, O glory. Some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away. Anybody know that song? How many know that song? All right, good. All of us who are of a certain maturity. Uh, Kind of grew up with that song. And so we, we sang lots of songs like that. In high school, uh, my brother and I, my brother Brad and I, we would sing this song. We, we sang it in many different places. It was an old Larry Norman song, if any of you know who that is. And it was called, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. I wish we'd all been ready. So encouraging. <laughs> so encouraging. So, so we grew up like that. And my grandma, my grandma would sit in church and we'd be talking about this. And the one day when we go fly away and she'd get blessed. That's what we call when grandma, grandma would get blessed. And she'd be in the back and she'd get blessed. And some of you grew up in traditions where people would get blessed. When grandma got blessed, it went like this. Woo! 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 Like, <laughs> again, if you're visiting, you're like, okay, it's really time to go now. That was my grandma. That's not me. And so she'd get blessed with that very idea that we're going to get out of here. And it's really interesting because all over the world, people are wondering, what is going to happen to me when I die? But did you know there's not really one passage in the Bible that talks about going to heaven after you die? We can infer it from some passages, yeah, but that, that phrase, go to heaven, it doesn't really even appear anywhere in the Old or New Testament in relation to death. Uh, not even once. Of course, uh, you know, th- that doesn't mean that the Bible has nothing to say about it. It's just that the Bible authors, they, they spoke of when we would die that we would be with Jesus. That's the way they talked about it. We have this comforting hope that when life here is over, that we know that we will be with Jesus. And that's pretty amazing. Uh, Luke 23, 42 through 43 is one, one of the places where this shows up. And it, in, in this passage, Jesus, he speaks to the repentant criminal being crucified next to him. And he says what? Today you will be with me in paradise. It's pretty incredible. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 9, Paul, he talks about the true hope that drives Christian faithfulness, even in the face of death. And the result of that faith, uh, and, and the result of death, he said, was being with Christ. This is the hope that we have. We can be with the Lord. What we know for sure is at the end that we have this hope that we will be with Jesus. And the takeaway is really clear for us. That for, for, for us, for followers of Jesus, death is not the end of the story. Just as Jesus went through death and he came out on the other side transformed, you and I, we have the same opportunity. We're going to go through that and we'll come out the other side transformed and we'll be with him. So, so I want you to see this this morning, that going to heaven just wasn't how the Bible authors looked at it. That's not the way that they talked about it. And I think because it's because God really had something else in mind for you and for me. And this is a big idea. It's a big idea for our church. And I I, I confess to you, this is not something that I'm an expert in. But as I've studied it and prayed over it, this is something that I believe our church, One Chapel Kyle, we need to get deep down in our hearts. It's going to harken back a little bit to some of the stuff that we've talked about over the last several weeks. But I want you today to just listen and go with me on this journey as we talk about what this looks like when heaven and earth overlap. Because I think it's who we're called to be. So what do you think of when you think of heaven? What do you think of? Like people think of pearly gates, they think of streets paved with gold, they think of fat little cherubs with fluffy wings playing harps, they think of like a, a cartoon city that's floating on a sky. 
in our English language, we'll use this word heaven. We'll use it to, to, as kind of a, uh, what's the word? A, uh, a synonym, there it is. A synonym for bliss or for paradise. We'll use it in the sense of, oh, that vacation was heavenly. Oh, that, 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 that food that your grandma made was heavenly. I got blessed. Woo. Right, that's, we, we use it in those terms. This is heavenly or, or that's heavenly. In the same way, what do you think of when you think of earth? What comes to mind when you think of earth? For some of us, we just think of a, a big spinning blue ball in space. Uh, others of us, we think about uh, more serious things like global warming. <laughs> think of melting polar ice caps. I asked my youngest daughter, Reese, about this the other day, and she said, yeah, it's like Florida is just gone. <laughs> what? Oh, my gosh, that's so scary. It's terrible. She's my little activist. Um, When we think of earth, we think of a tumultuous place where sin reigns supreme, where God's will isn't done. But when we talk about heaven and earth, we're talking about two separate and distinct spaces. And heaven, simply put, is God's domain. It is the space ruled by God. It is the space where his will is always done. It is the space where he decides how everything works and what is good. In that space, there's no sin, there's no uh, sickness, there's no death, there's no doctors. Well, I mean, there's doctors, but they're not practicing doctors. We're not sure about lawyers, but, but there's <laughs> cheap shot. I'm sorry. There's, there's like three lawyers there. So they really sold out to Jesus. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I love, love lawyers. I love your profession. I'm thankful for you when I get in trouble, much like I'm doing now. Um, the Bible will use the Bible authors. They'll use different words to describe this domain. They'll use God's kingdom. They'll use paradise. They'll say eternal life. And of course, heaven. On the other hand, earth here is our domain. And this is the place where we've chosen to be the ones who define what good and evil are. It is the place where God's will is certainly not always done all the time. And you know that just by looking around. Bible authors will call this domain by several names as well. They'll call it the world, the present age, the age of sin and death. And it's interesting to me that even when they describe it, two of those descriptions, they're defined as kind of being temporary. You know, the the present age or the age of sin and death, they're temporary, meaning they're going to come to an end. So the story of the Bible is the story of heaven on earth being ripped apart into heaven and earth and God's mission to reunite these realms once again. And it's an amazing story. It's a story that we're a part of. It all starts in Genesis, of course, where God creates this incredible garden and where, where the humans, they work with God and they explore with God and they create with God. It's this amazing and beautiful place. And Genesis 2 gives us a beautiful picture of God's space and human space overlapping completely. It was heaven on earth. It's a glorious time where God's space and human space are one and the same. And it's a picture of the type of relationship that God wants with you. And that God wants with me. He wants fellowship. He wants communion with you. He wants companionship. And I really love this idea that he wants partnership with you. He wants to work together with you. But of course, man rebels and sins because that's what we do. We're pretty stupid when we're left to our own devices. And so there's a rift. And from Genesis 3 onward, the tension that drives the Bible story is how is God going to rejoin heaven and earth? What is the rescue plan for this situation? And then the story of the Bible ends right there. Thanks for coming to church, everybody. Uh, With a promise, it ends with a promise, a vision of God's space and human space overlapping once more. And what that means is that we, you and me, we live in in the time and in the space where these are separate, where they're disconnected, but not completely. 
there are pockets of overlap still, and they're growing. Now, in the Bible, the video talked about this. The overlapping spaces are, are mainly and specifically associated with temples. In order for the average person to meet with God, they had to go to the temple, and that's where they would meet with him. And that's why the, the, the beginning of the Bible story is so fascinating to me. Because in the beginning, God didn't create a temple for himself. Instead, he plants this garden. He puts a garden there where he dwells with humans. And the garden was his temple. Where humans, they had full access to God. And God had full access to humans. Creation was God's temple. He dwelled with and he worked with humans. And then, of course, after the fall, God would provide a new place. Part of the rescue plan. A new place in a temple. I love this idea because God, even though humankind rebels, even though they step back, even though they say inappropriate things with their hands on a video that was blurred, it was blurred, but, but even though they do that, God says, I'm still coming after you and I'm going to provide a way for you and I to be together. Even though you've sinned and pulled yourself out, I'm going to make sure that you have a space to meet with me. So in the Old Testament, we have two major descriptions for the buildings of these temples. You'll find them in Exodus 25 through 31 and in 1 Kings 6 through 7. You can read those later on your own time. It's really interesting. There's lots of detail, points to the garden, really beautiful, really incredible. But what's the purpose of those temples? We've kind of already talked about it a little bit, but God himself outlines the express purpose of the temple in Exodus 29, 42 through 46, where he says, For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet with you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. And then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So the express purpose of the temple was for God to meet with and to dwell among his people. But they couldn't just walk in and hang out with him. They couldn't do that. Before they did that, they had, before they could approach him, they had to be made clean. They had to be, be made pure. Something had to take away that sin. A sacrifice had to be made. So God established this human sacrifice. Sorry. <laughs> okay, we're done. Thanks. Have a great Sunday. That was the third strike, man. Now you're definitely out of here. Let me clarify that. <clears throat> On the podcast, maybe we could just cut that part out because that's not what we believe. Let me slow down. God instituted animal sacrifice. Animals. Not people. Animals. Super important that you understand that. Jesus himself. Animals. Not people. Okay. <laughs> we got it. <laughs> wow. Um that was uh, quite the interpretation. Uh, so he, he institutes this animal sacrifice as a means to deal with Israel's sin. And it enables them to be able to remain in God's presence without something really bad happening, without being destroyed, right? And so it's a little weird for most of us, but, but it's a really important idea that we need to get. And there's lots of places that we could point to in the scriptures. I'm just going to point to one for the sake of time this morning. In Leviticus 17:11. here's what it says. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. It's the blood. 
the life that makes atonement for the individual. And this is God's design. This is the way that he instituted for us to be able to connect with, his, with him. He wanted to be able to connect with his people, at least in the Old Testament. This was all part of the plan. And it was that way for a long time until Jesus arrives on the scene. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, everything changes a little bit. Because in the New Testament, all this imagery of temple and sacrifice, all of it moves to Jesus. It all changes. Jesus is now described as the temple where heaven and earth overlap. And Jesus is described as the animal sacrifice offered for sin. I wish that we had time to really go through this. I'm going to point to a couple things briefly. Number one, to talk about how Jesus is the temple. Jesus as the temple. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's what the video referred to. He tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. I love that phrase. He made his dwelling among us because it intentionally points to Exodus 29.44 that we already read. In that verse in 46, it says, They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. He's saying literally and metaphorically, he would tabernacle. He would live among us. The message Bible will say he he becomes flesh and blood and he moves into the neighborhood. And then it gets even crazier because in John chapter two and verse 18, the story happens where Jesus, he shows up into the temple and they're selling a bunch of stuff and they've kind of made it like a den of thieves. And so he overturns the tables. Maybe you've read the story. He, and what he's doing is he's cleaning up the temple. And then right after he does that, he ends up saying, look, you tear this temple down in three days, I will build it back up again. And they're all saying, <laughs> it took us four decades to build the temple, man. You're crazy. And of course, we know today he was speaking of himself and he was saying, look, everybody, there's a new temple and it's me. I am the place now where heaven and earth overlap. I am the place where you can meet with God. And then Jesus is the sacrifice. And John 1.29 says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him as John the Baptist is baptizing people in the river. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is about to enter public ministry. And his cousin, John the Baptist, he's, he's, he's there and baptizing people. As Jesus is on his way, he shouts out, everybody, look, it's the lamb. It's the lamb of God. And he announces Jesus' purpose to everybody there. The lamb of God who will take away the sins of the entire world. And he's pointing back to these requirements for animal sacrifice that we read about in the Old Testament. Peter will talk about it in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from our ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So in the New Testament, in Jesus, we get this incredible picture of movement, this movement from the physical temple to Jesus, from animal sacrifice to the ultimate sacrifice for everybody It's all part of the plan. Now, Jesus, he's a prophet, right? He's a prophet. And and as he goes around, he talks, his main message is about the kingdom of God. This is the thing that he talked about most. This seems to be the focal point of his message. He would say the kingdom of God has arrived. And he talked about it often. And what he was saying was, hey, everybody, heaven and earth are overlapping. It's happening. Heaven and earth are overlapping. Now, today, Jesus is most often associated with, you know, good and moral teaching, you know, you're supposed to love your neighbor and love your enemy and those kinds of things. But that view is actually not a reflection of the message that he taught the most. He was not primarily a moral teacher, not by a long shot, but he was a new prophet. He was a new prophet showing up and saying, hey, you've read about these prophecies like this guy Isaiah talked to you about. 
And I'm here saying that these prophecies are all happening and they're happening right now. They're finally coming to pass. He showed up and he says, heaven is aggressively invading earth, just like the prophets predicted. And Jesus declared, I'm the one that's making it happen. All of this is happening. Heaven is aggressively invading earth and it's happening through me. And everywhere he went, there's hot spots of God's kingdom showing up. As he forgives sin, as he heals people, as he sets captives free, as he casts out demons, hot spots of God's kingdom, the reality, the presence of God and heaven overlapping with earth, showing up everywhere he goes. But he's preaching this message and he's saying the kingdom of God has arrived. But what did that really mean? Because clearly not everything had changed yet. Clearly he had not thoroughly renewed all of creation. Yet somehow he's pointing to the arrival of God's domain, overcoming and settling here into our domain. Tim Mackey, is, he's a doctor who's, who's really responsible, one of the two guys mainly responsible for the Bible project. And here's what he says about this idea. He says, in Jesus, God began a full throttle invasion of our domain. No longer was God's domain limited to the inner sanctum of the temple or short dreamlike visits to key Israelites like the prophets. The general was on site and he was recruiting an army. This army was going to break down the gates of Sheol. Victory was unavoidable. Heaven and earth were going to unite. I love this idea. And so as a result, Jesus starts teaching his followers to pray that the kingdom of God will come. Pray it every day. When you pray, say, Lord, let your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that God's domain would reclaim more of humanity's domain every day. And so it becomes really clear in Jesus' teaching that he believed God's heavenly reign was a present reality. Because he said that it had arrived in himself. It was here. And he would talk about it in such a way that he would say, anyone who follows Jesus can enter it. You can see it. You can seek it. And he would even say that you can receive the kingdom of God as a follower of Jesus. But then he would also talk in different ways about how the kingdom was still coming. It hadn't fully arrived yet, at least not completely. So which is it? In order to help us understand what's going on, New Testament scholars will use the word inauguration. Now, I know we've just had inauguration several months ago, and people are like, (laughs) but just get past that for a minute. Get past all that for a moment. Any preconceived notions that you might have about that word or this idea, because they would use this word inauguration as a metaphor. In the ancient world, before telecommunications, before Facebook, before Twitter, before the gram, before, (laughs) before any of that stuff, it would take time for an empire to be notified when a new king was on the throne. And it would take even longer for that king to go around and to visit the different districts that he was ruling. So though a new king was technically, he was an inaugurated ruler, meaning he had all the authority, he had all the power, he was fully in charge of all the land. It would just take a little time for everybody to be made aware of it fully. Today would be totally different. People would be, there'd be a press release and people would be on TV. The ruler himself would be on Instagram with the Insta story being like, hey, y'all, we out here. And he'd be like saying, you know, this is all happening. But that doesn't happen then. It would take time. And just like that for us, that's how this is. The inauguration of the kingdom of God has happened. It's happened. And he is fully in charge. And he was fully in charge then. It just takes a little bit of time for everybody to know about it. And that's kind of the space that we live in. So there's a theologian named George Eldon Ladd, and he would use this phrase, already and not yet. Already and not yet to capture the kingdom of God and the present and the future reality of how it works. It's here and it's coming in full. Everybody, this is so exciting to me. 
because this is the place where we live. This is the space that you and I live in. Of course, we know the story doesn't end there, right? Jesus, he, he ends up being crucified. The religious leaders of the day, they crucify him. And so uh, he's, he's dead and he, it's, he's, he's arrested. He's executed on the cross. He rises again, all a part of God's rescue plan. And then he ends up saying the night before his execution, he told the disciples, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you so that you can continue the kingdom mission. Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This sounds like such a crazy scene every time we read it. There's wind, there's fire, there's tongues of fire, there's speaking in tongues, there's all this stuff. What is going on here? In the Old Testament, when God first came to dwell in the tabernacle, his presence appeared in the form of wind, in the form of fire settling over the Holy of Holies. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 40. You can read about it in 1 Kings 8. You can read about it in Leviticus 10, where cloud and fire hover over the temple. And the same exact thing happens, 1 Kings 8, when at the dedication of Solomon's temple. Same thing. And there are other times he shows up in this way. God appears to Moses through a burning bush. Moses receives the Ten Commandments in a firestorm atop Mount Sinai. God shows up in this way. And so this imagery enacts to them in that day and to us today. The imagery can't be any more clear. Jesus died and rose again. And God's promise was arriving and settling into a new temple. A new temple. The temple wasn't a tent. The temple wasn't an opulent building. The temple was now the body of Jesus' followers, individually and collectively, you and me. They, we, became many temples, many temples for his presence to dwell, individually, collectively, hot spots of God's presence and activity in the world. Through the Holy Spirit, the church now becomes the temple, the place where God's space and human space overlap. Look at it, Ephesians chapter 2, 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. With Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The temple now becomes the church, not a building you in me. Jesus' followers, us, we become the temple where God's presence dwells by his Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5 says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices accepted to God, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter says that we, you and I, were living stones that make up God's temple, the place where he dwells. So the reason for all of that, the reason for that long, semi-boring history lesson, the reason for all that stuff in a different way that I usually teach on a Sunday morning, the reason for all that background information is that so you and I can now realize that we are now, through the Holy Spirit, the place where God's space and human space overlaps. It's us. That's what we do. That's who we are. Your faith is not a list of do's and don'ts. 
Your faith is not a list of requirements that you have to fulfill. Your, your, your life is about so much more than that. You have become the temple, the place where God dwells, the place where his Holy Spirit is, the place where heaven and earth overlap. You are a mini temple. You are a hot spot of God's activity in the world. And it is your responsibility and my responsibility to step outside of the walls of this local church slash theater and show up in the world bringing healing and life and health and helping people to find Jesus and forgiveness of sins. That's what we do and that's who we are. This is a big deal. Again, we talked about this over the last six or seven weeks, but we've tended to reduce Christian faith down to this little itty bitty thing of I get to go to heaven when I die where the Bible authors never talked about it in that sense. They want you to know and God himself wants you to understand you are a hot spot of God's activity, the kingdom of God resident on the earth. That's who you are. We have been, we continue to be part of God's rescue plan for his world. And no doubt the early Christian believers, they saw themselves as the place where heaven and earth overlapped, as God's temple. And so they had to make a shift in their vacation. They now had a, their vocation. They had a new job to do. And for them, as many temples, furthering the kingdom of God became their top priority. This is what we read about when we read in Acts, when we read through the epistles. This is what they're doing, expanding the kingdom of God on the earth. Not walking around and telling people, did you receive Jesus into your life? That's not the point. It's part of the point. It's not the whole point. You are a hot spot. They are a hot spot of God's activity on the earth. That's why I want our church to understand this idea so much. And I know that we're just skimming the surface of this thing, but I just want you to get that big idea today. You are where heaven and earth overlap, and that was God's plan. Being God's temple is a serious, serious task. 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Don't you know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And that's why Peter goes to work in the epistles talking about all these things, the church as the new temple, uh, talking about all these challenges to the way that we live our lives. Because we can't just do whatever we want, live however we want, and then become a hotspot of God's presence on the earth. There has to be a new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new way of following Jesus. That's why Peter will say in 1 Peter 1, 1, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. You got to get this stuff out because just like they couldn't step into the temple without a sacrifice, you can't step in in the condition that you're in. You need something else. Thankfully, that sacrifice has been paid already for every single one of us. That's why Peter will go on to say, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Many of you grew up in church saying, abstain from this. Don't do that. You're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to do that. And that's not the point. So, well, it's just a, so I can check off my religious list of things to do? No, because you are a mini temple of the presence of God. Because heaven and earth overlap in you. That's why you abstain from sin. That's why you don't join your body with somebody else. That's why you don't lie. That's why you remain faithful. That's because you're a mini temple. So what happens is this divine presence of Jesus is with his people, you and me through his spirit. And that reality has to reshape our every day. Every day. It has to shape the way and change the way that you deal with your family. It has to change the way that you go to work. You're not just going to work and punching a clock anymore. You are a hot spot of God's presence in the earth. You are a mini temple. Heaven and earth overlap in you in that workspace. Your cubicle just got a whole lot cooler. Yeah. 
That's who you are. And we get to partner with God in his plan, partner with his work in making things right. The work that he's doing of bringing these realms together again forever, bringing the domains of heaven and earth back together. This is what scripture points to for us. God's plan, making things right. Jesus will talk about it in Matthew 19, 28. He'll say to them, truly, I tell you at the renewal of all things, hear it? At the renewal of all things, that's what he's doing. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The Apostle Peter will talk about it in Acts 3, 21. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. He promised long ago through his holy prophets. Paul will speak of the same in Romans 8, 21. Say that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. All things being made new. This is the work in which you are partnered with God. This is the stuff that you and I get to do. This is what we've been talking about for the past six or seven weeks with open your eyes. This is what we're here for. And so listen to how it ends in Revelation chapter 21. In fact, you guys can come on up, Adrian. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea, no longer any turmoil, no longer any uh, tumultuous stuff. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Sounds like stuff that we read already, doesn't it? And it's happening in full. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So the Bible ends with the heavenly presence of God fully rejoined and fully integrated back into the earth. This is the hope of the story of the Bible. This is why I want you to read your Bible. I don't want you to read through Leviticus and go, oh dear God, I can't do it again. I want you to see the big picture and what God is doing and what you get to be a part of, what your faith is actually about. God's domain, our domain, once, one day will completely unite everything made new. Death is replaced with life. The whole earth will be a recreation of the garden. The glory of the temple will fill the entire earth. Every nation will be blessed through the power of the resurrected Jesus. God's own personal presence will permeate all of his new creation. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Why don't you close your eyes for a second? This idea needs to shape our lives and our church. I don't want to be a bunch of Sunday Christians who show up, sit in a seat, sing some songs, go to lunch. That's not what I am. I'm a mini temple. I'm a hotspot of God's presence on the earth. He wants to partner with me in doing his work. C.S. Lewis said, the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. I don't think he meant they just thought about it a lot of times. (laughs) I think he was saying... They understood what was really happening and they said yes to partnering with him. Look, everybody, you and I are the ones who bring the presence of God and the realities of heaven into the world. 
I don't want you to miss that today. I've said it pretty loud, screaming at you lots of times. (laughs) You are the ones who bring the presence of God and the reality of heaven into your family. You're the one who bring that into your workplace. You're the one who brings that into your school. You're the one who brings that into your neighborhood. Yeah, even to that neighbor. That's what you do. So what does it look like if tomorrow we show up at work with this idea? How does your workplace start to change? Heaven and earth overlap here. The presence of God is here, resident in me. I am his hot spot in this place. What happens if you walk into school this fall with that in your heart? What happens with your family tonight? This afternoon, when you go sit down to lunch, what happens if we all decide, the people here in this room on this 4th of July weekend, we decide we're going to live this way? This hope of seeing God's domain and our domain fully rejoined is what drives us to follow him. It's what drives us to seek him. It's what drives us to pray that more of heaven will invade more of earth. And maybe more appropriately for us today to pray that more of heaven will invade more of me. To take residence in me. To help me to see myself the way that he wants to see me. To be who he's called me to be.